I'm going to show you how to go into a trance, how to relax your body and your mind. Once you start the process, no power on earth can stop you from going into a trance and you don't have to do anything. It will just happen easily and quickly as long as you follow my instructions. So, just settle back, relax yourself, take a deep breath, and let it go. Now take another breath and feel your eyes closing. Shrug your shoulders and let your arms and your hands go loose and limp and floppy. Move your attention to your eyes. Just become aware of those eyes and the little muscles that control your eyelids. Let those eyelids become so relaxed that you just cannot open them. So tired, so heavy, until you just cannot open them. When you know you have relaxed those eyes and you know they will not open, you can try to open them and you will find that they just won't work. So you can stop testing now and just enjoy that feeling of relaxation getting deeper and deeper. That's right. Welcome to Psychologia, the podcast where we explore the science behind why we do what we do. I'm your host, Maya Perkins. heard is the opening of hypnotic induction. Used in the 1940s by doctors and dentists as a means to rapidly hypnotize patients, it was developed by the vaudevillian cum hypnotist Dave Elman. Elman's life story could be an episode unto itself, but suffice it to say that this Renaissance man's contribution to the study and practice of hypnosis was lasting and influential. Medical practitioners used his induction method for decades, and his book, Findings in Hypnosis, was considered among the best hypnosis manuals for many years. In fact, he was present as a sort of coach during the first heart operation in which hypnosis was used on the patient whose medical conditions prevented normal pain treatment. So, what is hypnosis? How does it work? And what is its role in psychology? Hypnosis has been used in many settings, such as memory recovery, pain management, and court proceedings. Its application has been broad, and at times it has been very controversial. Although its exact effects on the brain are still somewhat mysterious, there are three clear ingredients known to be required for effective hypnosis. Attention, absorption, and dissociation. Attention is essentially focus. In psychological terms, attention is the cognitive and behavioral process of selective concentration and the allocation of the limited resources required for tuning the world in and out. Attention is the cognitive and behavioral process of selective concentration and the allocation of the limited resources required for tuning the world in and out. It allows us to decide what we will attend to and what we will ignore. This may seem like a simple task, but people who have poor attention can have a very difficult time learning and navigating the world, as we see with attention deficit disorder. Are you listening to me? I look into your eyes and I can't tell whether you're getting anything I'm saying. 
Absorption is the degree to which you can immerse yourself in information to the exclusion of other things and your surroundings. It tends to have a high correlation with fantasy-prone people and can be a high indicator of hypnotizability. First research done on absorption was led by Octalogen, an American psychologist and professor at the University of Minnesota. He saw a strong connection between absorption and states of altered consciousness, such as hypnosis, meditation, and the control of biofeedback, such as heart rate. As he put it, quote, objects of absorbed attention acquire an importance and intimacy that are normally reserved for the self and may, therefore, a temporary self-like quality. These object identifications have mystical overtones." End quote. Absorption is most often measured using the Telogen Absorption Scale, or TAS, and has been shown to have an effect on people's responsiveness to hallucinogenic substances. In fact, research has indicated that absorption may be linked to the binding potential of serotonin receptors, in particularly 5-HT2A, which is also the primary site in the brain for activity related to classic hallucinogens like psilocybin and lysergic acid dithalamide, or LSD. The third element of hypnosis, dissociation, is the capacity to divide one's attention so greatly that memories for a situation are not consolidated. Unlike psychosis, which is a total loss of reality, dissociation refers to detachment. It can be used to describe simple detachment from immediate surroundings or more serious cases in which a person is completely detached from a physical or emotional occurrence. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM, lumps all dissociative disorders into one category, although dissociation can be triggered by a range of things, including trauma, stress, drugs, and even nothing at all. In the case of hypnosis, strong dissociation requires suggestion and direction on the part of the hypnotizer and willingness and openness on the part of the person being hypnotized. I want you to relax every muscle in your body, beginning with your... Toes, your fingertips. It is estimated that 95% of the population can be hypnotized. The degree to which any one person is hypnotizable is measured using the Stanford Hypnotic Susceptibility Scales, which rank people on a scale from 0 to 12. Many people fall into the 5 to 7 range, but people who rank in the upper levels can be so hypnotized that they are able to shut off their senses completely when instructed to do so. It is believed that the ability to be hypnotized is at least in part genetic, as has been seen in studies involving identical twins. Little is known about how hypnosis works, but advances in EEG scans have effectively shown that when a person is hypnotized, fast-wave brain activity decreases while slow-wave brain activity increases. This same pattern can be seen during meditation, further strengthening the connection between the two states. 
When a person is hypnotized, they become more malleable and open to suggestion. I want you to relax your legs. You're beginning to feel your eyelids getting heavy. Researchers believe that during hypnosis, it is possible to access the unconscious mind more directly, allowing for dialogue with the part of the brain that is typically out of reach. For many people, this communication with the unconscious is strong enough to suppress pain recognition. Are you feeling it now, Mr. Krabs? Are you feeling it now, Mr. Krabs? Are you feeling it? Are you feeling it now, Mr. Krabs? Are you feeling it now, Mr. Krabs? Are you feeling it now, Mr. Krabs? In 1967, Ernest Hilgard conducted one of the most famous early experiments exploring the effects of hypnosis on pain at Stanford University. Subjects who had been screened for their suggestibility submerged an arm and a foot in frigid circulating ice water. They were asked to rank their pain level on a 10-point scale, zero representing no pain, and pushed to go beyond the threshold once they had reached it. The same participants were then hypnotized and asked to repeat the experiment. Despite results on the first day indicating that two-thirds of the subjects breached the 10-point threshold within 30 seconds, under hypnosis, the same number were able to remain in the frozen water to the 45-second mark, and half of these were still reporting pain levels of just 5 out of 10 after a full minute. Right on the tick. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Further studies into hypnosis's pain management benefits have shown similar results, and this remains a welcome application for many patients. Hypnosis has been shown to aid in memory retrieval, because the focus required for a hypnotic state to be achieved is often the antidote to forgetfulness. The potential benefits of hypnosis on memory, however, also come with a dark side. It turns out that the openness required for successful hypnosis does more than simply help you suppress pain or remember things you've forgotten. It can also leave you open to memory distortion. As discussed in the previous episode, in extreme cases, this distortion has led to outright false memories, which can have startling implications in courtroom settings. In fact, the history of hypnosis's place in the legal system is a fascinating view into its fraught place in society, because it has changed repeatedly over the last two centuries. To examine this course, let's look at the two earliest examples of hypnosis evidence in the American justice system. The first documented use of hypnosis in a criminal case occurred in 1897 in the state of California. 33-year-old Joseph Jaffet E. Banks was charged with the murder of Mrs. Harriet Stiles, age 60, and her 85-year-old father in the town of Riverside. Under hypnosis, Ebanks denied that he was guilty, and the hypnotist who aided in the interrogation was called to testify to his innocence. The court, however, refused to allow the testimony, calling it inadmissible as such evidence was not recognized under the law of the United States. After a lengthy appeal process, Ebanks was hung until he died in May of 1898. He maintained his innocence throughout, and his last words were, quote, I have nothing at all to say. The lasting impact of his trial and execution was the precedent of per se inadmissibility for all hypnosis evidence for the next seven decades. 69 years later, in 1966, James Milton Harding met Mildred Coley at a bar in Baltimore, Maryland. After having some drinks and driving around with friends, Coley refused Harding's sexual advances and he pulled out a gun and shot her. 
After dumping her on the side of the road and meeting up with his brother, he returned to the scene and he raped her. She was found alive the next morning with a very hazy and confused recollection of what had occurred. After three failed attempts to get a clear story from her, the Baltimore police brought her to the Waterloo Police Barracks to meet with Ralph P. Oropolo, the chief clinical psychologist at Clifton T. Perkins State Hospital. There, in the barracks, he hypnotized her. When she came out of the trance, she was able to give a full and detailed description of what she had been through. Later, during the trial against Harding, she was asked to testify about what happened after she woke up from the session and spoke to the trooper who was questioning her. She said, quote, He say, how does it feel to be hypnotized? And I told him it was a nice sleep. He asked me questions what happened between Harding and I, and I could answer them then, things I couldn't answer before. It all came back to me, end quote. When the judge asked whether Arapolo had told her what to say, she replied, quote, No, I wasn't told what happened, and it came back to me. When I was asleep, it all came back, and I told them what happened when I was awake. End quote. Using her evidence, the investigators were able to track down Harding and charge him with assault and rape. The statements she made due to her hypnosis were verified, and in an unprecedented ruling, the testimony was admitted in court. Harding was sentenced to 35 years in prison. Over the next two decades, several famous cases called the legal admissibility of hypnosis into question again. The 1976 Chowchilla kidnapping case, in which a bus full of school children was buried alive in a van and saved only by their bus driver's ingenuity, was resolved in part due to that driver's memory for the kidnapper's license plate under hypnosis. People v. Heard again hinged on hypnotic refreshment of memory, but People v. Shirley overturned past precedent, and such testimony was once more rendered inadmissible. In each of these instances, psychologists were called either to administer hypnosis or testify to its value or lack thereof. Then, in Arkansas in 1983, Vicki Lorene Rock got into an argument with her husband, Frank. When he refused to let her leave their apartment and the fight turned violent, she grabbed a gun and he wound up shot in the chest. When the police arrived, she begged them to save his life, but he died. When the trial for the shooting began in 1987, Mrs. Rock struggled with the details and the sequence of events. In an effort to sharpen her memory, she underwent hypnosis twice with a trained neuropsychologist. Both sessions were recorded. Following the hypnosis, she recalled details of the incident which had previously been inaccessible to her, including the fact that the gun was, in fact, effective and had misfired during a struggle, meaning that the fatal shooting had been accidental. This detail was corroborated by an independent ballistics expert, indicating that the hypnosis may indeed have helped to clarify her memory. When her defense counsel attempted to admit her testimony, however, the court ruled that no evidence derived from hypnosis would be allowed, and instead, she was permitted only to testify to the statements she made before the clarifying experience. This led to the exclusion of many pertinent details, including the crucial point that the shooting had been accidental, as well as the source of the conflict and her husband's behavior prior to the shooting. She was convicted of the crime. Upon appeal, the Arkansas Supreme Court upheld the conviction, stating that her constitutional rights were not violated by the limitation on her evidence. The court went on to rule that hypnotically refreshed testimony is unreliable and, as such, per se, inadmissible in all cases. 
Her next appeal went to the Supreme Court of the United States, who ruled that Arkansas's decision was a violation of Vicki Rock's constitutional rights as it prevented her from providing a full defense. Restrictions on testimony, the Supreme Court stated, quote, may not be arbitrary or disproportionate to the purposes they are designed to serve, end quote. The court called the Arkansas rule, quote, a per se rule prohibiting the admission at trial of any defendant's hypnotically refreshed testimony on the ground that such testimony is always unreliable, end quote, and concluded that it had had, quote, a significant adverse effect on the petitioner's ability to testify. Mrs. Rock was granted a new trial and allowed to testify in full. The debate about the legal admissibility of hypnosis evidence is still an open question in many parts of the United States. Some jurisdictions are willing to include such testimony, and those that have no specific rule must look to history and past precedent for guidance. Psychology's role in this ongoing conversation is to provide scientific backing for each conclusion and to continue the exploration of hypnosis's potential. Although there can be no doubt that, for some, hypnosis is the push needed to find a clear memory, there are many other cases proving that the opposite is also true. Hypnosis can create false memory and can lead investigators astray at crucial points. The human mind remains a great mystery, and its capacity to be molded and shaped by experience and external forces is still greatly misunderstood. In times to come, neuroscience may unravel the strange enigma of trance states and give us clarity about how best to maximize their powerful effects. But for the time being, it is often up to psychologists to examine and critique the values of hypnosis and its potential impact on the truths by which we live. As the philosopher and psychologist William James said, quote, The greatest discovery of my generation is that a human being can alter his life by changing his attitudes of mind. Thank you for listening to Psychologia. This episode was created and produced by me, Amaya Perda, with writing help from Mario Rivera, sound design and music composition by Cameron Carter. You can find all episodes of Psychologia on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and SoundCloud. Please follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Psychologia Podcast or Twitter at PsychologiaCast and visit our website for show notes and supplemental materials or to subscribe to the Psychologia Report at psychologiapodcast.com. We'll be back next time with another episode exploring the science behind why we do what we do.